Hi there and welcome to La Terrasse. I'm Christopher Watkin, author, university lecturer and researcher in modern and contemporary European philosophy. And this is the gas from La Terrasse, your open invitation to pull up a chair, order your favourite drink and think together with me about life and culture and French philosophy. This episode is the audio version of a video that I prepared for the Camus Christ and COVID-19 event organised by Christian Heritage Cambridge on the 20th of May 2020. A link to the original video is available in the episode notes. In this episode, I discuss the importance and value of literature in a time of crisis. I think about some common misunderstandings of Camus' The Plague, and I consider what we can gain from reading the novel in our current pandemic situation. I hope you enjoy it. It is as reasonable to represent one kind of imprisonment by another as it is to represent anything that really exists by that which exists not. This quotation from Daniel Defoe's Robinson Crusoe serves as the enigmatic epigraph to Abbe Camus' The Plague, surely one of the great stories by one of the finest authors of the 20th century. It's an epigraph that's as provocative as it is impish because it throws out a challenge to the reader of the story. How are we going to receive this representation of a plague this representation that itself never really existed. What are we to make of this fictional epidemic? We who are living through a real pandemic at the moment. It's not only a question about Camus' story, it's a question about the whole institution of literature. The bread and butter of literature, is it not, is precisely to represent what really exists by that which does not exist. And so in introducing Camus' story, I feel that I, I first need to say a few words on the very idea of reading literature in order to come to terms with COVID-19. Because engagement with literature, I think, is an important plank of our response to the current situation. And it is a plank that the mainstream media is almost entirely ignoring. After addressing this first point, I'll introduce the plague itself, addressing some of the common misconceptions about the text, before wrapping up with some suggestions as to why it's an important novel for us to be reading at the moment. So then let's begin where Camus himself begins in his epigraph, with the question of representation and with an apologia for literature. That such a thing should even be necessary speaks eloquently about the journey that our society has been on in relation to the arts. The idea that literature and stories are to be relegated to the category of entertainment and reserved for those who like that sort of thing is a curiously and peculiarly modern delusion. It's both blind to the power of entertainment to shape outlooks and mentalities and it's blind to the ubiquity of stories in our everyday existence. You know, we can no more live without stories than we can live without 
shelter or sustenance. Without them, we simply cease to be human. The stories are not just trifles we read to amuse ourselves. They are lenses we look through to make sense of ourselves. It's what the philosopher Paul Ricoeur and others have called our narrative identity. You show me the stories you tell yourself, and I will show you who you are. So then what is a text like the plague? Well, let me offer one possible response. It is a world. Not our everyday world, but sufficiently like it to be recognizable and sufficiently different to be challenging and provocative. It's a world to which we're invited to travel and where we're invited to live for the duration of our reading. It's a world that takes us out of our everyday existence and then returns us to it with new understandings, new feelings, new vicarious experiences. As Camus notes in an essay on capital punishment quoting Madame de Lafayette, the novel is a way of overcoming the difficulty of fate by imposing upon it a form. That's what literature does, it shapes, it forms our experience. If our only experience is of our day-to-day -day world, if we never leave that world, then we will be very unlikely to question that world. Why would we, when we've no idea of any alternative? But literature puts us just for a few hours in a different world, such that when we return to our own, we find it to be one among many possibilities. And this sense that things could be different, this inkling that the status quo is not all that there could be. This is a precious intuition that, if it's lost, makes sheep of us all and makes wolves of some of us. And it is literature that shows us this contingency of our own world, of our own immediate lived reality. And therefore, voyaging from our everyday reality into literary worlds is not just entertainment. It approximates closer to an act of civic duty. Like the proverbial fish that doesn't recognize that it's in water because it's never been out of it. We can't see our own world, the world right in front of our eyes. We can't see its assumptions, its quirks, its prejudices, unless we've got something to compare it to. Now, of course, literature is not the only way that we can learn from others' experiences and get a perspective on our world outside of our own. It's not the only way that we can walk in others' shoes and live in their worlds. But ask yourself this. How many times in life does someone let us into their private world with the candor and the depth that we find in a well-written novel? How often in life do we know someone so well that we feel what it's like to be in their world. Perhaps three, four, five times if we're lucky. And in all probability, who are those three, four or five people? Well, they're people necessarily who we meet, who are most probably like us, who speak our language, who broadly share our interests and our opinions. In short, they're people who are already like us. Well, that is a very small pool of experience 
from which to fish for wisdom in a globalized world. And literature then opens us up to an immeasurably broader, richer, more diverse set of encounters and experiences than we're ever likely to have in our daily lives. So then how should we characterize this experience of literature? We're no doubt familiar with the skiing analogy. If you want to learn to ski, it's no good reading about it. You need to strap on your skis and take to the slopes. Reading a book about skiing gives you head knowledge of how to ski, but it is taking to the slopes that gives you the skill, the learned bodily knowledge of skiing. So I'd like to ask this question. Is reading literature like reading a book about how to ski, a dump of information with no real life application? Or is reading literature like skiing, a practical exercise rather than a theoretical contemplation? When we cry at a book, do we cry theoretical tears or real tears? When we are moved by a book, do we feel theoretical emotions or real emotions? When we see life differently after finishing a novel, do we experience a theoretical change in perspective or a real change in perspective? In each case, I think these experiences are real, neurologically, affectively, real experiences. A book about skiing is not skiing because skiing, to put it rather crudely, is about staying on your feet and going downhill. You can't do that reading a book. But a work of literature does not just represent life, like a book of skiing represents the experience of skiing. No, literature participates in life because life itself is about stories, it's about emotions, it's about relationships and understanding. And these are the very things that literature offers us, not a mere third-person report of them. So to respond directly to Camus' epigraph then, it is reasonable to represent that which exists by that which does not, because reality is always already an inextricable amalgam of matter and meaning, physical creation and mental creation, things and the stories that make sense of those things. So as we tighten our focus to Camus' The Plague now, we do so in the knowledge that we're not detaching ourselves from the immediate concerns around us, we're seeking to question and to broaden our perspective on our immediate lived reality to help shape the world in which we all live. And as we come to Camus' text, we do so in the knowledge that we are enlisting the aid of one of the greatest writers of the 20th century to help us feel and experience what it's like to be a human alive at the moment, how we live, both individually and corporately, in this time that we might call the time of being towards virus. Camus began writing the plague in 1941, in the depths of the Second World War. And it was published two years after the war's end in 1947, to huge initial success. It sold over 22,000 copies in just two weeks, and over 5 million copies have been sold to date. No doubt many more in the last couple of months, as it's become one of the go-to literary texts for the COVID-19 epidemic. 
But Camus himself, of course, was an existentialist philosopher, playwright, novelist, journalist, freedom fighter, and indeed football goalkeeper. We see him here in this image uh, in his cap. He was an active member of the French resistance, editing the resistance newspaper Condé during the Second World War. Now, many people, most people perhaps, read the plague as a story of the absurd. Uh, this is Alain de Botton's take in the New York Times article on the plague a couple of months ago. But what people don't remember is that Camus' work can in fact be divided into two broad periods. The first period characterized by the absurd and the second by revolt. And on his own testimony, the plague is part of the second phase of his writing, the, the phase of revolt. And what this means concretely is that we're mistaken if we read the plague merely as a text about our resignation to the meaninglessness of existence, which, by the way, is not what Camus' absurd is about anyway. In a letter to Roland Barthes in 1955, Camus insists that the movement from the stranger to the plague is that from solitude to solidarity. And the text itself is framed as an exercise in solidarity. Dr. Rieu, the narrator of the story, uh, writes his account in French pour ne pas être de ceux qui se taisent, uh, so as to not be among those who remain silent. It is an act of affirmation, an act of resistance itself, the story, the plague. And in his chronicle, Rieu privileges the experience of the group over any particular individual in a further gesture of solidarity. Or take the journalist Rombert's dramatic gesture of solidarity when he decides to stay in Oran despite the opportunity he has to leave, and how this emblematizes Oran's response to the plague. Uh, Rombert says, Je sais que je suis d'ici. Cette histoire nous concerne tous. I know that this is where I'm from. I'm, I belong here. This story. Uh, concerns us all. You wouldn't find a line like that in L'Etranger or in Le Mythe de Sisyphe, the myth of Sisyphus. So this is not the Camus of the absurd. This is the Camus of resistance and revolt. So then, what is the plague about? Well, Camus himself says that it functions on three levels. It's about the events as they're literally recounted, the plague in a home. It is about the German occupation of Paris, Camus says. Some people, de Botton included, tried to deny this, but Camus was always firm. It is about the German occupation of Paris. And it is about human existence as a whole. And what does the plague have to say to us today? Well, no doubt much more than I can encapsulate in any short video such as this one, but as I've tried to explore in my blog posts on the story, it opens a number of fruitful avenues, I think, for further thinking, particularly in the, the present context. It shows us, for example, how crises such as COVID-19 serve an apocalyptic function, revealing aspects of ourselves and our society that, for better or worse, would otherwise remain veiled or invisible. It shows us how modernity fits its whole horizon within the status quo to the extent of dismissing the thought that things could ever be radically different to how they currently are. It shows us how we all try to fit new realities into existing expectations. 
and how disorienting it is when reality breaks or overflows those expectations, causing a paradigm shift in our understanding of the world and how it works. It shows how a crisis messes with our understanding of time, and by extension, how crucial our understanding of time is for our experience of the world. It shows how we rely on statistics to give us a sense of the whole beyond our immediate experience. And it shows the problems inherent in relying on statistics in that way. Camus' story is also an invitation to us to listen to the other side, Audi Alteram Partem. To be invited into the world of Oran under quarantine is not trivial. To understand what the world feels like to a rire or to a panelu helps us to appreciate and engage fruitfully with people who are not like us. The plague also gives us a fresh perspective on our own time and place. It is, in C.S. Lewis's terms, an old book. It wasn't written within our cultural moment. It doesn't share our blind spots and prejudices. Oh, to be sure, it has its own blind spots and prejudices, but they're not the same as ours. And it therefore helps us to see our own times of COVID-19, at least in part, with the perspective of an outsider. And in so doing, it helps us, just to take one example, to understand and to contextualize the news that we see and hear every day at the moment. It triangulates the relationship between the contemporary news media and our own experience of what we're living through at the moment with a third point that helps us to see how the first two relate to each other and the assumptions and prejudices of each of them. And finally, it fosters our own self-understanding because inevitably we understand ourselves better through understanding others better in the oft-quoted lines from Eliot's Four Quartets, we shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know that place for the first time. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Gas from La Terrasse. You can head over to iTunes, Google Play or Spotify to subscribe or rate or leave a review. You can also find more content related to my research, writing and blogging over at ChristopherWatkin.com. Until next time, take care.